If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn in them with me uh, once again to the book of Acts. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can uh, follow along this morning with the insert that's found in your bulletin. This morning we return to a study, a book study, which is our normal practice here at Ascension for those of you who are visiting. Uh, it is our normal practice to study through books, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And uh, beginning of this year, we began looking at the book of Acts. But uh, for the last several months, we have been, uh, we hit the pause button and we have been on hold with the book of Acts as we have opened up uh, the book of Proverbs. Well, this morning we return uh, to that study we began many months ago because we've been away from it. And because many of you who sit here now, uh, after several months hearing sermons on Proverbs, were not here for any of the book of Acts, I want to spend just a few minutes, even before I read the passage, getting us back up to speed where we are. Obviously, the book of Acts is a story. It's history. It's a story not as in a fairy tale. It's history, as in a recounting of the history of the early church. It's entitled Acts. And it's entitled Acts. Many of your Bibles say Acts because what we mean when we say Acts is Acts of the Apostles. An apostle being one of those 12 followers of Jesus Christ when he was here on earth. And though the book, the book of Acts, follows these men, the book is really not about them. It's not about them. And so early on, you might remember that we uh, define the book of Acts as this, the working of the risen and exalted Jesus through His Spirit in the Acts of the Apostles. So we kind of beefed up the Acts of the Apostles just to recognize the fact that ultimately it's not about these guys. It's about what God's Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the risen Jesus, is doing in the lives of these men, and in the ancient world with which they, with, within, which, within which they reside. That's what I was trying to say. And so chapter 1, just to really briefly set the stage, chapter 1, Jesus left this earth. His followers, his disciples, chose a replacement for Judas, the one who had betrayed Jesus, and then they waited. And they waited because Jesus said He was going to send His promised Spirit. And then in chapter 2, the promised Spirit comes. And He comes in power. And He comes in glory. And He ignites the followers of Jesus to proclaim the name of Christ. And then chapters 2-5 through five of the book of Acts describes the early church being the church. Figuring out, okay, what are we going to be about? We're going to be about the teaching of the apostles. We're going to be about the breaking of bread and prayers. We're going to be about fellowship. We looked at how that's instructive for our life together, these many thousands of years later. But then we were reminded at the end of chapter 5 that God called his people to something more. Because while they had been proclaiming the name of Jesus in Jerusalem, Jesus had said, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But God's people just like we would have been, were slow to go. And so God helped them. And God scattered them. And then uh, chapters 6-12, through 12, we move beyond Jerusalem 
into Judea, into Samaria. And the gospel has been on the move. And that's where we've been, as we've been looking most recently at the book of Acts before we took our break, that the gospel is on the move in the face of opposition and suffering. It is moving. And I want to remind you of where specifically it's moving. Jeff's going to throw up a map here on on the screen behind me. I'm normally not a visual guy, but, uh, but I'm going to throw up a visual. Perfect. Okay, so here is our map, uh, our map of the ancient world. And most recently, in our study of the book of Acts, we have been looking at the Apostle Paul and about the Apostle Paul's journey through the ancient world. And so we began over here in the, in the city of Antioch. Remember, there were several Antiochs throughout the ancient world. It was a very popular name. Uh, to name your city. But we started in the Antioch of Syria, and Paul and his companion Barnabas moved to the island of Cyprus. And they landed in Cyprus, and they walked all along Cyprus. And then from Cyprus, they went up to Perga. And then they went to the Antioch in Pisidia. And then they went to Iconium, and then in Lystra, and Derbe. And that's where we most recently have walked with Paul and Barnabas seeing them walk through the ancient world, at least this loop right here, seeing them spread the gospel and plant churches to proclaim the name of Jesus. This, just so you have your geography, this is obviously modern-day Israel down here. This would be modern-day Turkey. Modern-day Turkey and then Greece, of course, and Italy, which is helpful for context. And so we have been looking at this proclamation, this move of the gospel, gospel breaking down geographic barriers, breaking down cultural barriers, and it came to a head in chapter 15 because the gospel is getting so diverse, it's going out to so many different people, particularly those who aren't Jews, that the church recognized that they needed to make some statements about what was required of these new believers. And if you remember, one of the last sermons I preached on the book of Acts was from chapter 15 as the council of Jerusalem gathered to say Jesus is enough. That all the traditions of the Jewish people, though they served their purpose well, they're not necessary anymore for salvation. Jesus is enough. It's not about keeping the law. It's not about observing rituals of Jewish tradition. It's about trusting in the one whom God has sent. And so Paul and Barnabas, after they had made this loop, we left them here in the city of Antioch. That's where we left them before we went on break. And so this morning as we open up uh, the Bibles, I want to read with that lengthy introduction I want to read the last part of chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, verse 36. You can take it down for now, Jeff. Thank you. Acts chapter 15, verse 36, and we'll be reading through chapter 16, verse 10. Listen as I read. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, 
Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and they sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and he circumcised him because the Jews who were in those places, for all they knew was that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went to Troas. They went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there's always a danger, I think, in throwing up a map before you before a sermon and then reading this long account of of where this guy went and where this guy went. Because there's a temptation for us to think, man, this is just like a history class. This is just a dry, ancient history class that I've come to this morning. He said this, they argued over that, he went there, they went there. Is that what we're doing here this morning? Friends, I think you know what I'm going to say. This is much more than just history. Yes, it is history in the sense that it is True, it is information that I want to impart to you. But God's Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that empowered these men long ago, has preserved this Word for us here today, for all of you sitting here, for us collectively as a church. Because He wants to teach us. He doesn't want us just to know something. He wants to teach us. He wants to train us. He wants to encourage us. And I think He does that this morning through this account that I just read by two, in two different ways. Two different things that this account says to us about our gospel proclamation. Now let me say, just say this before I say that. The first one. In large measure, the book of Acts speaks to us as a church. It speaks to us as a collective body of believers united around one vision 
and one mission and one Lord. It's not to say that when I've spoken to you this summer from the book of Proverbs that I haven't to speak into, that I haven't spoken to us as a church. But Proverbs certainly speaks to you as individuals a lot. Speaks to your own character. Speaks to your own relationships. Speaks to your own homes. And while it's not to say that the book of Acts doesn't have any application for you as a person, you as a man, you as a woman, you as a family, Acts is more a message for us to be, for us to digest and for us to absorb as a people. As a people united as the church. So this is the first thing that I think God says to us, God reminds us, the church of this morning in this account. In spite of us, Jesus is building his church. In spite of us, Jesus is building His church. If I just leave it right there, what a wonderfully encouraging truth to hear. In spite of us, Jesus is building His church. But I want to show you where that's found. I want to show you how, that show, how we see that here in the lives of the early apostles. Wonder how many of you know what a duff or a shank is. Many of you know that I like to play golf from time to time. Not particularly well at it, but I like to play golf from time to time. And a duff and a shank is something that you'll hear sometimes in the golf world. As I said last week, I think when I was talking about pride and humility and brought up the game of golf, I'm not very good at golf, but there are guys who are very good at golf. They're on television. Their names are like Tiger and Rory and Ricky and cool names like that. And I watch golf from time to time. My family would tell you that. And sometimes when I watch golf, every once in a while, once in a blue moon, there is a duff on TV. There is a shank on TV. There is a shot done by one of these guys, Tiger or Rory or Ricky, that is so bad that you kind of want to cringe. Like, oh, they just did that before millions. It's a shot that's cringeworthy, but at the same time, so wonderful. And the reason it's wonderful is because it's a moment of great encouragement for me. And millions of other guys like me and women like me who like to play this game or any game, insert your favorite whatever. Because I hit that kind of shot every three shots I hit. And it's something that reminds me that these guys are human. That they're just like us. And it's interesting that we come in our story of the book of Acts to the mighty... Paul, the mighty Barnabas. And we begin with an issue that gives us a glimpse of the humanity of these men. And we say, what? What happened? What's going on, you guys? Let me back up for just a moment and set the stage. 
After years of travel through the ancient world, it took them years. They didn't fly to these places. They walked. They took boats. After years of traveling together, Paul and Barnabas have settled back in the city of Antioch. And you'd think Paul has paid his dues. Maybe he should set up shop and just train young guys to go do that traveling thing. He can just stay in one place. He's done that, been there, done that. But no, what do we find Paul doing? At the beginning of our passage, Paul is ready to go. All right, we've been here long enough. It's time to go back. It's time to go back where we've been to those places that we just came from. We think, why, Paul? Why do you want to go back to where you just came from? Well, he wants to go back to expound grace. He wants to go back to encourage leadership that he has put in place. He wants to go back to address any possible misunderstandings or errors that he knows are arising in the churches that he planted. That God planted. See, he recognizes that these are baby Christians. These are baby churches. And they need to be strengthened. They need to be encouraged. And, and so he suggests this. Let's go back. And Barnabas Seems to like the idea. Sure, let's go back. I just have one thing. Let's bring John Mark with us. Screech! The whole thing comes to a halt. We ask, well, who is John Mark? A couple things about John Mark. Four things about John Mark, real quick. One, remember way back in the beginning of of, uh, the book of Acts, Peter was in jail, and Peter walked out of prison, and he went to the house where God's people were praying for Peter, and he knocked on the door, and they didn't recognize it was him. They didn't believe it was him. That house that Peter knocked on was the house of Mary. Mary is the mother of John Mark. He's a man who's well-connected in the early church, John Mark. John Mark is also Barnabas's cousin. He's family. That's the second thing. The third thing is John Mark, if you remember, John Mark was an original member of the band. John Mark started with Paul and Barnabas in Antioch, made the boat trip over to Cyprus, made the walk all the way across to Cyprus, made the boat trip from Cyprus to Perga, and then what happened? John Mark ditched. He left. And he went straight from Perga all the way back to Jerusalem, all the way home. Why did, why did John Mark do that? We don't know. The, the Bible doesn't tell us. Luke doesn't tell us. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe he got ill. Maybe he just couldn't take the rigors of what this trip was going to entail. For whatever reason, he left. And now Paul doesn't want him to come. I remember when they released Sergeant Bergdahl the man who was in Taliban hands for many years. I don't know whatever happened to him. I never followed it up. But I remember they originally were accusing him of of desertion, of walking away from his post, and that's how he got captured. And they were asking some of his uh, platoon mates, would you ever want him to come back and serve with you? And what do you think their response was? No way. If I'm going into battle, I want to trust the guy that's next to me. That he's going to be there with me. See, I think Paul considered John Mark a deserter. He didn't trust him. 
And so there was a disagreement, a sharp disagreement, not just a difference of opinion, but a sharp disagreement. The words that are used here come from the words meaning to provoke to anger. Maybe Paul was just too task-oriented, kind of trampling over the people. Maybe Barnabas, who was called the son of encouragement, was too people-oriented and wasn't thinking enough about the task at hand. Maybe he just wanted to make amends with John Mark. We don't know the situation. What we do know is this. This is weakness. This is human frailty. There are probably mistakes being made. There are probably words being said that aren't appropriate. There is probably and quite possibly some sin here between the mighty Paul and the mighty Barnabas. And yet, what does the Lord do? In spite of us, He's building His church. It's just amazing. How is He doing that? Well, first of all, new teams are being formed. It's not like the whole missionary enterprise just falls apart as a result of this sharp disagreement. No. Paul links with Silas, and Barnabas links with John Mark, and that means now suddenly we have double the workers in the field. We have two more apprentices who are going to walk with those older guys, those seasoned guys who have walked and done what needs to be done. Not only that, but twice the territory now is going to be covered. Because Paul is going to take Silas and he's going to backtrack in the way they came. And Barnabas is going to take John Mark and he's going to go to Cyprus where they began. And God's sovereign strategy is working itself out. Even in our conflict, even in our weakness, even in our sin. Now, don't take from this that you need to go out and seek conflict. That's not the point. The point is that we are reminded that even we can't stand in His way. We can't screw this up. And boy, I need to hear that. Because I feel my weakness, I feel my frailty. Maybe you feel it in your individual encounters, missed opportunities with unbelievers, and you're kicking yourself. You can't screw it up. Jesus is building His church despite us. But there's another angle, not just our weakness, not just our sin, but it also God, God is building His church. Jesus is building His church despite our intentions and plans. And this will sound very much like, for those of you who are here several weeks ago, we talked in the book of Proverbs about God's purposes and man's plans. And how the sovereign will of God interacts with our responsibility and our freedom as individuals. But one of the things I want you to notice is this mysterious movement of God's Spirit. And I'm jumping down to the, to the last section of our passage, verses uh, 6 through 10. Paul goes through these churches. You can throw that map back up, Jeff. Maybe now would be a good time. Paul goes with his new partner, and he returns to the churches of Galatia to encourage them. So he's headed, ooh, that's big. That's bigger than we were. 
Maybe just move it down a little bit. There we go. Perfect. Okay. So here's the region of Galatia right here. And Paul is returning this way. He's going up through this region. And here are the churches of Galatia that he is going to encourage and he's going to minister. And those, that's, that's a good thing. But one of the things that's just amazing about this history, about this passage, is that Paul, as he encourages these churches and then makes his way through Asia, what happens? What does the Bible say happen? In verse 6, he is forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow him, uh, did not allow them to speak. You see, Paul is going, you would think that the Apostle Paul would have a green light to preach the Gospel wherever he wants to preach the Gospel. Just get it out, Paul. Get the message out. Of course, that's probably how Paul thinks. And so he's going through this region and he's preaching, he's preaching, he's preaching. And then suddenly, he wants to go up here to Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus, we don't know how, but the Spirit of Jesus says, no, don't go there. And in fact, don't, don't do anything in here. Don't talk. Just go straight over here to Troas. And of course, that's what Paul does. When God speaks, you listen. We don't know how God spoke. We don't know how the Spirit of Jesus led the Apostle Paul. But we know, in our modern vernacular, that Paul just got a door slammed in his face. And he gets this open door flung, almost like he's getting funneled over to Troas. See, this is not what Paul had in mind. Paul, Paul probably had in mind, I'm going I'm to visit these churches, I'm going to deal with them, and I'm going to come down here and maybe plant some new stuff there in Asia. I'm going to get the word out. And the Lord says, no. In spite of your well-made plans, in spite of your intentions, Jesus is mysteriously building His church. Now, will the Gospel come to that region? Absolutely it will come. But it will come in the Lord's timing. And it will come not through Paul. Why? We don't know. But we know that Paul ended up in this city of Troas and then... He saw a vision of a Macedonian man, Macedonia being over here, this whole region, which represents a new step for God's people. Because once you cross this sea, you are now into Europe. You're now into Europe. This is modern day Europe. This would be Romania up here. Former Yugoslavia up there. And so Paul is being funneled all the way to Europe. We don't know who the Macedonian man was. We don't know what the Macedonian call consisted of. But what we know is this. It doesn't matter because it's God's work and it's His direction. Now let me try to apply this in a couple different ways, in a couple different spheres. I'm done with the map, Jeff. Thanks. First of all, let me just apply it in regards to the church. Christendom. You know, one, as I've said, I think, in other contexts, one can get discouraged watching the news, reading the news, the seeming triumph of evil all around us. 
Friends, God reminds us this morning, Jesus is building his church. Despite what we see, I love, I got a New World magazine, if you're familiar with this publication. I love the cover of it. Just came in the mail this week. Is the world falling apart? And it says, it often looks that way. But from church basements in Ukraine to living rooms in Iraq to fellowship halls in Israel, a redemptive center still holds. Jesus is building His church. The gates of hell will not prevail against whatever evil we may see in the world. You know, as I thought about the church at large as well, I thought about just the evangelical church and the, the divisions, the denominations that we have. It seems like you, you blink your eyes and there's a new denomination that has been formed. And we, we ask ourselves, didn't Jesus pray in John 17 that we may be one? And yet here we are just fragmenting more and more and it can be discouraging. But even in that diversity, there is unity. And Jesus is building His church. If we were to focus it a little more closely, let's think about ascension. Many of you have been here a lot of years. Some of you not so much. But for those of you who have been here a lot of years, there's quite possibly some pain in the birth of this church. Things didn't go exactly how you thought they were going to go as it was planned that they would go. Seems like you took two steps forward and then one step back. And yet look at us now. Rejoice in what God has done even this year in the life of this church. And what God, we pray, will continue to do. Despite us, Jesus is building His church. And I think we can also apply it individually as well. Conflict in our lives happens all the time. It's inevitable. When sinners get together, there's conflict. But conflict is always, especially you who are married, conflict is always an opportunity for redemption. To see God at work in your own heart. To see God use us in our weakness and in our frailty. One writer I read this week said about this whole section that we need to learn to trust Him for guidance and rejoice in His restraints. That's probably Paul's experience as he was hitting these roadblocks by the Spirit of Jesus, trying to do what God had called him to do, and yet seemed like every door was closing. And yet, in spite of him, Jesus is building his church. Well, that's the first thing I want us to see. The second thing is much shorter, don't worry. And it's this. The only obstacle to the Gospel should be the Gospel itself. The only obstacle to the Gospel should be the Gospel itself. Itself, And this, again, speaks to us as a corporate church. You've heard the phrase, some of, sometimes people say, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, that's what I will do. No matter what. 
Jesus told the story of a treasure that was hidden in a field. This person, upon finding the treasure, which Jesus said is the kingdom of heaven, this man was going to do whatever he could do to get that field, to get that treasure. And so he was going to sell everything that he had. Because the fact of the matter is, there are some things that are just worth it. They're worth everything. And I think here as we read this passage, we read this history, what Paul reminds us in this middle section, the very first part of chapter 16, is that very thing. Some things are worth whatever it takes. It's a seemingly inconsequential passage about the recruitment of Timothy. Except for the fact that, and some of you may have picked up on this, except for the fact that it looks like a contradiction. Those of you who know the Scriptures well, you know Timothy. Timothy is the pastor that Paul will encourage in his pastoral epistles later. Timothy will become a pastor of a church. Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. He was a child of the covenant. Likely at this point he was a teenager. But he had not yet received the sign of the covenant. And so Paul wants to recruit him. He wants to take him. But he tells him he needs to be circumcised. He needs to receive the sign of the covenant before he goes. But, but here's the weird thing. Paul carries with him a letter from the Jerusalem council that though it doesn't explicitly state circumcision, it, it communicates to all the churches that Jesus is enough. That you don't need these other things. You don't need these outward signs. We don't need to add anything to the work of Christ. And so what is Paul doing? Is Paul carrying this letter saying one thing and doing another with Timothy? By requiring Timothy to receive the sign of the covenant? An important thing to see is that Paul's not saying it's necessary, but Paul's saying it's worth it. See, for Paul, context is king. It's about the gospel. Whatever needs to be done to not hinder the gospel. Paul is accommodating. He is becoming all things to all men in order that he might save some. He's removing any stumbling block before Jewish believers that they come in contact with that might hinder them from hearing the gospel and letting the gospel confront See, this is characteristic of Paul's life. It's about love for others. Romans 14, 13, let us decide to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother, Paul says. It's about sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And lastly, this is about a focus on essentials, on the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, I think we need to hear this. We need to digest this truth, especially us Reformed folk. Because what Paul is doing here with Timothy is not contradicting himself but he's not letting 
convictions overrule people and blur the gospel. Christian liberty, as we call it, the freedom to do things that we feel we're free to do, is a beautiful thing, but it never, ever ought to trump love. Love for one another. And Paul is concerned about these Jewish believers because he wants them to not just feel loved by him, but to know love through Jesus. So I think it's a question to ask ourselves. What are we willing, what do we need to lay down to give up for the sake of the Gospel, lest we get in the way of the Gospel? It's a balance. It takes takes wisdom. We need wisdom to do this. We need grace. Brothers and sisters, I want you to leave here encouraged. That Jesus is building his church despite our best and worst intentions and actions. And I also want you to leave here challenged. The power of the gospel, the power of what Jesus has done is enough. May we not hinder it in any way. And may God give us grace to walk that line. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for this account, this historical account which teaches us so much about what you're doing, about what you have done, about what you call us to be. Father, I pray that you would use this in the life of our church for your glory as an encouragement, as a prod. Give us wisdom. Give us that grace we need, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.